Welcome to devmo.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Jennifer Bloomberg from Next Solutions. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Ryan Ireland from CraftQuest.io. Today we have a special guest. His name is Chris Ferdinandi, and we're really happy to have him to talk about JavaScript. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Great. Thanks uh, Thanks so much for having me here. And really nice job on the last name. No one gets that right. So I'm really impressed. Nice. Awesome. I got it right. I'm super proud. Well, I wanted just to give you a little bit of background about what this particular episode is about. A few months ago, we had an episode about the internet where we broke down the basics of the internet from answering questions like, what is a packet? And what is a DNS? And how does your browser work? And what is HTML? And all of those questions that that went pretty well. We continued the series to talk about PHP because a lot of listeners work with PHP, Craft, CMS, and Laravel and other similar <laughs> frameworks. So we talked about that. We said, what is PHP and why was it invented and how does it work? And so we're excited to have you on to talk about JavaScript in the same way to actually break it down for people who maybe even have been using JavaScript for many years, but don't really know how it works or why it is and maybe you know <laughs> where it's going. You're probably the best person to talk about this and we can get into why <laughs> in a minute, but I'll start off in saying, just giving you a scenario. So let's say you're waiting around at Yellowstone, you're waiting for Old Faithful to erupt, and you got about two minutes before it goes off. And a friend turns to you and says, hey, Chris, why do we have JavaScript? What purpose does it serve? What do you tell him? Oh, um, uh, yeah, um, we have JavaScript because of Netscape, and its purpose is to make the web slower and more fragile. Wow. Okay, we need to break that down. Because there are probably a lot of children out there that don't know what Netscape is. Is it like one of those? Yeah. Is it like a like a VHS? First of all, I love that or... Chris is coming out just swinging. <laughs> it's like we have JavaScript yeah. to break everything and make everything suck. I love that he's yeah, coming out. No, swinging. I mean anyway. I, I love JavaScript, but it causes a lot of harm on the web too. So we can talk about all this. Yeah, we definitely need to. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack. If that was my like, I'm about to get hit by an asteroid two second version. That's it. But yeah, so where do we want to go? Do we want to go all the way back to the beginning we can talk about netscape if you want that'll be fun yeah I think yeah. we need to talk about Netscape. Yeah. So JavaScript has a really long history on the web. So many, many, many years ago, there was a browser called Netscape that people used to use to navigate navigate the internet. Mark, I always mess up his last name, Anderson, Anderson. I can never pronounce his last name. But Mark really wanted a scripting language on the web. And there were some conversations happening with, with Sun Microsystems around Java. Java applets were about to be a thing. And so they really wanted a language that was designer beginner friendly that could pair with this more serious programming language. And the stated intentions there are really ironic when you think about how development on the web works today. But that was kind of the, the original goal there. And so they hired a gentleman who I will say his name once and then henceforth refer to him as Voldemort. <laughs> so they hired Brandon Ike um, to design and develop this language. Voldemort really wanted a language that resembled something a little bit like Scheme. And he's written about this before on his own website. Because of this partnership with Java, Netscape and, and Mark really wanted something that followed a similar syntax. And so a lot of the weird, quirky stuff in JavaScript exists today in large part because of kind of these conflicting desires here. And to be perfectly candid, I really don't know much about Scheme other than that it's part of the Lisp family of programming languages. I also don't really know all that much about Java, but I know it shares a lot of its syntactical structure with JavaScript, despite being a totally different language. The other thing here was that JavaScript was built in about two weeks. 
weeks, which is actually a really impressive testament to, I think, the programming skills of Voldemort. But it, you know, a lot of the why is this the way it is, this language seems really silly and stupid and broken kind of stuff come from that genesis, come from the fact that you have a language that was built to resemble one language, but you know, the guy who made it really liked some stuff from this other one and he had to cobble the whole thing together in two weeks. <laughs> and so a lot of these weird caveats, like how numbers and strings are completely, a completely different type than objects and functions are, all that kind of stuff is a direct result of this weird kind of formation within the first iteration of JavaScript. And then we went through a whole era where different browsers were implementing their own versions of this thing. So you had Microsoft implementing kind of an engine under the hood called JScript that was kind of like what we think of as JavaScript today, but they didn't want to call it that because JavaScript was officially licensed and still is by Sun Microsystems, which is now, I believe, part of Oracle. What eventually became like Mozilla and Firefox had something called SpiderMonkey that they still use under the hood or did until recently. It all got really, really weird. It wasn't until like very recently, at least in the context of the web, that we had anything resembling kind of standards on how the stuff gets rolled out. Those of you who don't have a ton of hair on their head, like Andrew and I might remember a time when you had to write like a whole bunch of if else statements to get JavaScript to work reliably across different browsers. jQuery kind so Chris, of came I actually out of that don't era. remember that. Chris, don't I actually remember. don't yeah. remember that because <laughs> back then I was actually doing C and Objective C programming. Ah, and oh, so you missed that so whole. You, yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm kind of new to this whole thing, but I do. You made a really interesting point that I just wanted to to comment on. Yeah, sure. Which is that JavaScript originally, I think it was called Mocha, and then it was called mm -hmm. Live. Script, and then it was eventually called JavaScript, but it mm -hmm. was intentionally designed to be a scripting language and to be something for designers. And that's why at the time <laughs> I, I mentioned that I was yeah. doing C and Objective-C programming is because when JavaScript came out, the quote unquote real developers, and I know it sounds terrible, but I'm, I'm saying it for a reason, looked mm -hmm. at JavaScript as kind of a toy. And yeah, oh, no, that was by design. That was a stated exactly. kind of goal of the language. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's oh, what I wanted to get in there was that it was intentionally a kind of yeah. a scripty toy. But explain mm -hmm. what scripting language is because PHP is a scripting language. So what does that mean? What is the difference between a scripting language and a quote unquote real programming language? Andrew, you may be better versed at that than I am because I've always viewed like scripting versus programming as kind of like semantic nonsense and never really troubled myself with yeah. it. But I know there are actual definitions around these things. So a real programming language is one that you can feel superior when you say that you use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, you can, and you can crap on everyone that uses the, the scripting languages. I don't know. No, but scripting languages in general are supposed to be more lightweight. They're supposed to insulate you from a lot of things. You know, you don't have to worry about some of the low level stuff like memory management or types or, you know, it's, it's supposed to be something that is simple and approachable to people that do not have a computer science degree is I guess the way that I would put it. And I, I don't think that there's even though I was joking about it before, I don't think there's anything wrong with scripting languages at all. Like, I think it makes sense that you would have more simplified languages that are targeted at different people who don't want programming to be their day job, but still need a way to do something. So I don't think but, there's but, anything wrong with it at all. But that's kind of the distinction I would make. Yeah, I don't want to diverge too too much, but isn't Python a scripting language? I mean, isn't a lot of these things Ruby, started out Ruby that way. a scripting like language? Right. That's what I mean is that they're... Well, they, Jennifer mentioned PHP and PHP 
you know, we went over it on the last podcast. Check it out if you haven't heard it. But it started out as personal homepage, like just some dude that wanted to make a homepage. So it really was a scripting language and it grew into this mm-hmm. kind of behemoth. And it wasn't until some other more computer science people got involved that they kind of reined it back in and it became more like a quote unquote real programming language. Although, you know, the way things go in the, the computer science world, there are lots of people that don't consider PHP a quote unquote real programming language. So it is kind of semantic nonsense, like Chris was saying. There's a lot of kind of weird byproducts of this whole thing too. So Flash is gone. Java applets aren't a thing really in browsers anymore. For a long time, there was actually this battle within, I guess, just to back up for a second, eventually a standards board got put in place to try to make sure that JavaScript was implemented consistently across all different browsers. So that's where ECMA, which was an organization that was kind of responsible for communication related things came from. But so they, the version of JavaScript that we actually run in the browser is technically officially called ECMA script. And that's where the various ES versions that we associate with JavaScript come from. And so for a while, there was this weird sort of internal battle where some folks really wanted to keep JavaScript lean and lightweight and design focused. And another group of folks really wanted to push it to be a more programming heavy, serious kind of language. And so there was a long period of time where JavaScript as a language got really stagnated by these conflicting forces. And a real touring point happened, I guess it's been around like 10, 12 years now, but around when ES5 and then ES6 came out, those were two really big pushes for JavaScript on the web. It kind of brought about this renaissance that for better or worse has really made JavaScript the language of the web today. Not in any way to kind of poo-poo HTML or CSS, which I, I think are um, like really important foundational pieces here. But JavaScript is such a, an integral part of what we do on the web now. And a lot of that has to do with these big changes that happened about a decade ago. Now, Chris, you mentioned two things that I'm not familiar with. You mentioned HTML and CSS. I, I'm aware of JavaScript, but I'm not aware of this <laughs> HTML and CSS thing. Now, what are, what are those? Actually? Awesome. Um, So... Yeah. So just understanding the show is what it is. So if you're someone who's legitimately not familiar with those and you want to understand a little bit more about them. So HTML is the markup language of the web. It's what creates the structure and scaffolding, the text, the content, the images, the actual stuff on the web. CSS is what defines how that stuff should look, where it should be positioned, its color, its size, that sort of things. And then JavaScript is where you get a lot of the interactivity from, or at least that was its original purpose. There was actually a time when the only way to get a hover effect on a link changes color was with JavaScript. This like wasn't yeah. even a thing you could do in CSS. And um, those are neat categories for describing the differences between the three languages of the front end, but they really have started to blur together a lot. You can get interactivity just from HTML with details and summary elements, for example, or with CSS with hover effects. These days, people are using HTML to render content and do a lot of stuff that used to be purely in the domain of HTML before. And so there's a lot of bleed over between these kind of different languages now. It's getting really messy, which is not always a good thing. Why is it breaking the internet? Oh, yeah. So JavaScript is the most fragile part of that that stack. So between HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, JavaScript is super, super fragile. If the browser doesn't recognize an element in HTML, it just treats it as a div and moves on. If you mistype a CSS property, your browser's like, ah, whatever, we'll just throw that away and keep going. But if you mistype a variable name in JavaScript, the browser's like, oh, I don't know what this is. Let's just like kill this whole process. And then the entire rest of your script fails. 
And in an era where we are using JavaScript for all the things, rendering the content and all that, those kinds of errors have a much bigger impact because like pages don't render at all or interactivity just stops working. You click a button, nothing happens. JavaScript is also really, really bad for performance. In addition to blocking other files from being, being downloaded while it's being downloaded and parsed, it also requires a lot more work from the browser in order to actually run in large part because it's a scripting language. So the nature of it being scripty causes a whole bunch of other related issues in the browser when things go wrong. And there are some things you can do to kind of mitigate against those or minimize their effect when they happen. But it is just, it's a lot more fragile. And there's this weird thing where the internet has gotten on average about four times faster globally in the last five to 10 years. And the speed with which websites download and render has stayed largely the same because we've scaled up the amount of stuff we're shipping down the wire so much that consumers haven't really benefited all that much from those performance boosts. We can do way more stuff on the web and that's super, super cool. But the web feels in some cases slower than it did five years ago because of this explosion of, of JavaScript. I think Adi Asmani had a good article, The Cost of JavaScript, which is something mm -hmm. that we'll put in the show notes and people can check out. But the, the basic gist to keep in mind is that a megabyte of JavaScript is very different and has a much larger impact than a megabyte of mm. an image, for instance. So you should not try mm. and draw an equivalency between the resources that are on your website. And the reason is that when an image is downloaded, browsers will just offload that to a GPU to do the decoding or whatever. It's very fast and you know it, it'll just take care of it. JavaScript, mm. after it's downloaded, it has to be parsed and then it has to be executed by a runtime environment that is emulated and running on your computer. And it, so it is a much more costly thing. So I just wanted to, to mention that. It, you know, out of curiosity, if you're listening and you just want to go check how much memory Chrome is using right now, it might depend on how many millions of tabs <laughs> you have open. But I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if many people have a gigabyte of memory being used just having Chrome and all the things that Chrome is doing. Yeah. On each website that's being loaded. Well, isn't that so just a couple of things about the, mm -hmm. the stopping on error? It's understandable that HTML and CSS can be more forgiving because they well, HTML is markup. Mm -hmm. and, and if you didn't close a tag, that's not the end of the world. Maybe your whole paragraph will be bold and fine. It will be able to handle that. And CSS even too, you put in a, a typo and you didn't spell width correctly, and so it just won't assign a width to that element. But in the case of JavaScript, I mean, if there's an error and you click the button and nothing happens, and I think, isn't that a, what we want? Like, we don't want the, the code to guess what we wanted and try to fill that in. And, and isn't this is just a problem with us trying to do more things on the web than we used to? And then now JavaScript sort of had to become a quote unquote real programming language. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's not, that's not a criticism. So I don't say that to criticize JavaScript. It's more a criticism of our over-reliance on JavaScript for things for which it is not appropriate. And so I see a mm. lot of sites now that are just like simple marketing sites or like really basic informational sites that use JavaScript to do everything, render the CSS, render the HTML. And by rights, they could probably be served up as static HTML because there's almost no interactivity on there. Maybe there's a contact form that yeah. you could also just handle with a server refresh or a, like a page refresh and send it off to a server with an old school like post request. So it's that kind of stuff. It's not because you're right. If yeah. there's an error in your JavaScript, you don't want the browser guessing what you meant to do there with that interactivity. 
But I wish as a developer community, we maybe relied on it a little bit less. For me, the great yeah. irony of JavaScript is that it started off as a language that was supposed to be very accessible to designers. And mm -hmm. I'm a JavaScript educator. I teach people JavaScript all day. And the frequency with which people who work primarily with HTML and CSS tell me that they don't understand it, that it just really hurts their head, that it's difficult to wrap their heads around is very frequent. And I also see a lot of folks in the JavaScript community look down very heavily on HTML and CSS as just like plaything languages that you don't do serious work with, which first of all is wildly dismissive of the amazing capabilities both of those languages have. But it's just such a dramatic deviation from what this language was originally intended to be. And I know that's just part of the evolutionary process, but mm -hmm. um, I wish it was both easier, a little bit more accessible for folks who are just learning and maybe with less of the arrogance. That would be great too. So I have a moral quandary for you, Chris. So sure. Here's the moral quandary, because I, I can tell that this is a, a an issue that is important and near and dear to you in terms of the overuse of JavaScript. What if I write a site entirely in JavaScript Maybe I'm using React with Next.js or something like that. Mm -hmm. But then I run my build step and it outputs nothing but static HTML and CSS. And that's what I deploy. Is that okay? Is the issue that you have with JavaScript the fact that it is, is it the language itself? Or is it the fact that a ton of it is being run client side? Yeah, there's zero moral quandary for me there. I, if, if that's the process with which you're most comfortable, then yeah, I mean, by by all means. My primary issue, well, I guess there's there's maybe two layers there. So I think for me, the, the bigger issue is the impact on end users. This stuff can often produce experiences that are slow, that are janky, that are, that are just objectively bad. And so a situation like you described, where you're using JavaScript as a templating language that gets pre-compiled into other stuff before being served, you wipe those issues completely out. Where I think that potentially falls apart a little bit is if you're working as part of a team and that choice was made because a subsection of your developers are more comfortable with JavaScript, but not everybody is. That can have a net negative effect on the ability of a team to work with code. It becomes a thing that has to be maintained, that other folks have to work on. This becomes really pronounced by way of example, a few years back when WordPress was rewriting their dashboard with the new Gutenberg, new, it's not really new anymore, but at the time, new Gutenberg editor, they chose React as the templating language for that. And no Nobody on their accessibility team had React experience, and they couldn't find volunteers in the accessibility community who did either. And so where they used to just go in and fix accessibility bugs before a project would ship, they no longer had that ability because they couldn't wrap their heads around that code. That was not kind of their area of expertise. When Gutenberg first came out, it was just absolutely littered with accessibility bugs. The head of the accessibility team, Rian Reitveld, she actually resigned from that committee because she felt like she couldn't do her job anymore. There was a, an accessibility audit that came out that was over 100 pages long, detailing tons of errors. These tool choices are totally fine in a vacuum. I think they become problematic when they're just kind of the go-to tool choice in a team environment and they don't work for everybody. But that's true of any tool choice. If they had gone with PHP and nobody on the team, except for a small subset of folks knew how to work in that language, that's problematic too. That's less a JavaScript thing and more like a being respectful of your peers kind of thing. So the reason I, I asked that, and I want to string this together with my, obviously I was being sarcastic when I said, what is HTML and CSS, right? <laughs> but in this case, and in the case of a lot of site generator type things, mm -hmm. people are not actually writing HTML anymore. 
they're not actually writing CSS anymore. They're using yeah. some level of tooling, whether it's JavaScript or something else. And mm -hmm. HTML and CSS really end up becoming a build target or, you know, this kind of just neutral format that these things render stuff out to. Does that bother or concern you? It depends. So I think there is, there's good and there's bad from this. I guess we'll call this the tale of two reacts. Twitter, Twitter's user interface. If you look at the favorite button on Twitter, that is a div, not a button. And it's nested inside 13 other divs, all of them without content, but a bunch of gobbledygook CSS classes that were spit out by whatever their JavaScript to HTML and CSS and JavaScript build tools are. That's a hot mess of garbage. And there are some real accessibility concerns with that. There's some performance issues with that. The flip side, though, is every year WebAIM, which is an accessibility organization, runs an audit of the top million sites on the web. And historically, they have always found that sites that use frameworks have more accessibility issues than sites that don't. Last year, there was a really dramatic change there. They found that that was still true with the exception of React. And sites that use React actually had fewer accessibility issues than both other framework libraries and sites that didn't use frameworks at all or libraries at yep. all. And one of the things I had observed was that React and the folks who work on it had invested a lot of energy into a focus on accessibility in the last year or two and making components that were accessible by default and that addressed a lot of the stuff that developers get wrong all the time. And so I think these JavaScript-based tools can be used as a force for good to make the web better when done right. But I also think one of the downsides is they so far remove people from the output that it can both make debugging harder. And it sometimes means you have a bunch of people who are building a thing and they don't actually understand the output of their craft. They don't understand yeah. why a div that's supposed to be a clickable thing nested inside 13 other divs is a bad idea. <laughs> And that's problematic to me. Yeah, so I've I don't want to like throw the baby on... out with the bathwater here. I just, I think, you know, there's, there's yeah. some challenges here that we need to work on. I've seen people that work on websites all day long and have no clue, zero clue what the HTML to their website looks like. They don't know because they're, they're well, building I, components. I want to talk about that. No, because I've been making, I've been working on React websites for about a year and a half now, coming from before many years of PHP with sort of vanilla JS, switching to use using React. And I have seen what you're talking about with the 11 divs nested in each other. That's happened when people, when we use frameworks, UI frameworks like Material or other ones that are like that, because you don't actually write any HTML, you just use a Material component and it gives you 11 divs. And our designers hate that and we only use it when we absolutely have to. But for a website created from scratch, well, from scratch, I say that using a framework such as Next.js, yeah. you, you still write HTML, you just you just wrap it in a render function and you have your HTML. So you can have beautifully clean and semantic HTML that mm -hmm. is just written in a slightly different way than from before when we used to write pages on one page and upload via FTP. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> Well, Jennifer, yeah, now that you have yeah. been drinking the the blood of sacrificed virgins, I mean, do you are you are you an apprentice to, to Voldemort now? What's the deal? <laughs> um, well, I I was very skeptical when I first started using these front end frameworks, and then I just had to for a client, and now we are basically using React for everything that we build, and I definitely am understanding what you're talking about. With I'm seeing all those complications, but I've also seen a lot of problems that. React has solved for us that other websites 
we found it much harder to do. So for example, if making an interactive web app versus a marketing site, just infinitely easier using React. And if we stay away from the UI frameworks, which adds more work to our plate, we can also get really nice semantic HTML. Mm -hmm. um, I still I haven't figured out how to make something like material look good <laughs> under the hood. I mean, the, the components out of the box, but yeah. you get this horrible HTML. We haven't solved that, but but yeah, I mean, I'd say it's a mixed bag, but it, it solves a lot of problems that clients are expecting us to solve. To be fair, it's it's not the tool, it's how people use it. So a hammer is fantastic for hanging up paintings and, and things like that. But if you were to try to use it to wash the dishes, that's a problem. And I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of what I've seen happen on the front end is when certain new tools emerge, they get broadly considered like the tool you have to use for everything. And that's where they become problematic. React solves actual real problems that certain businesses have. I'd argue that we tend to use it for a whole bunch of problems that it's maybe not always the best fit for, but there are absolutely a subset of things for which React is a, a fantastic choice. Yeah. So I don't, Jennifer, I, I certainly don't want to kind of in any way invalidate or dismiss your experiences with it. I've heard that from a lot of developers and I think it, it has its place. I just think that 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 place, it's maybe overused. Well, I'll, I'll do it for you. Yeah, Jennifer, yeah. you're the spawn Definitely. of Satan for doing this. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> no, but I, here's the other point, though. The, a reason mm -hmm. why. I, I agree in general. Like, there are lots of sites. You're like, you look at it and you're like, why does this need to be React? This doesn't need all this JavaScript. Yeah. But then when you consider that the agency mm -hmm. has spent all of their time in training their employees to be experts in React, why would they use anything else, right? We all only have so much time to get good at one thing or another. Mm -hmm. If your agency works on a wide range of projects, some of which are interactive and really need the kind of things that uh, a framework can really help you out with, and others mm -hmm. of which are just small marketing sites, but you can take the skills that you've already learned and apply them to that thing, it kind of makes sense, I think, that people might just say, you know what, I'm just gonna get really good at React and JavaScript, and I'm I'm going to become an expert in that. And yeah, I know it's overkill for a marketing site, but we're going to use it responsibly. We're going to use it as a build tool that ends up building the stuff. So I can still write stuff in my React mm -hmm. components that I know well, but on the front end, there's going to be little to no JavaScript that is delivered, but then I can use yeah. that same skill in JavaScript and in React or Vue or Svelte or, you know, whatever the thing is that you know, and you can apply that to the, the bigger projects. Does that make sense? Would yeah. you, would you excuse would you give Jennifer a pass, Chris, if, <laughs> if she said that was the reason why she wants to use it everywhere? Yeah, no, and I, I understand why these things happen. To be honest, the use of React for server rendering or kind of like pre-building, I know it's been around for a little while, but in terms of like a thing that's becoming more of the norm, that's definitely a newer trend. And so a lot of my criticism around these libraries stems from the fact that people were just chucking 30 kilobytes of minified and gzipped JavaScript that unpacks into like 1.2 megabytes of unzipped JavaScript that the browser has to keep in memory and work with just as the baseline experience. And if the tool is not doing that, I have way less of an issue with it. You know, if it's just a backend kind of thing. These days too, there are so many other options. Like we've seen the emergence of, I like to call them like micro libraries. So you have something like Preact that uses the same API as React, shaves some stuff out um, yep. and delivers just three kilobytes of JavaScript minified in GZIP. 
concept. Now you have things like Svelte and Astro, which let you author in a similar kind of way. And then they just spit out HTML and vanilla JS. And that's kind of their whole thing. Astro is really weird because they let you pull in components from all of your favorite libraries and mix and match them together, which is really weird. So you could use like a view component and a React component and it's felt thing and it spits the whole thing out into HTML and vanilla, vanilla so JS. And so would it be fair to say that we could consider JavaScript to be recreational drugs? And if you know, <laughs> you want to use a little bit here and there, like good on you, have fun, but just be careful and, and don't, you know, don't let it consume your life. Hmm. I don't know if I'm ready to go like full libertarian on uh, the drug use thing, but um <laughs> You know, dep depends on on what and how, I suppose. But yeah, I I guess I guess that analogy. Well, we're we're trying to get you on record in case yeah. you ever run for political office that we can just right. bring back the tape. You know, get a little payoff right. on the side. That's it. That's there all. There you go. Sorry, go ahead, Jennifer. Sorry, you mentioned Vanilla JS. I was wondering yeah. if you could explain what Vanilla JS is. Yeah. If I wanted to write a, a website that has some interaction and a few different mm -hmm. pages and yeah. you know share have some shared modules or components with Vanilla JS, how would I do that? And I think you're the best person to ask that, right? Because don't you have a whole course on Vanilla JS? Yeah, that's kind of my thing. So Vanilla JS is what used to be just called JavaScript, and then libraries became so prevalent that whenever you would search for how to do X in JavaScript, you'd find tons of articles on like install jQuery and install yeah. React and yeah. install Angular and. And so someone made a joke website, uh, vanilla-js.com that very much does not read sarcastic, especially if you're not English as a first language. And it goes down to just zero kilobytes installed and minified. There's even like a source tag to load an actual JavaScript file that's completely empty. So it started as this the hot new framework kind of joke. And then people co-opted it as a real, just like a real phrase to describe browser native JavaScript. And it becomes a really convenient way to search for things and just blanket exclude all the libraries. Yeah, vanilla JavaScript is these days very capable. A handful of the more recent updates to the, the JavaScript language have really brought some amazing capabilities to the web, including being able to get a JSX-like templating syntax for HTML, which is awesome. I think browser native or vanilla JavaScript is really, really good at is light interactivity. You click a button, something happens, you want to move some stuff around on the page, you want to asynchronously load a little bit of content, it's great for that. Where tools like libraries, I think, really start to outshine it, at least today, are when you have complex client-side applications with a lot of moving parts. So to use the cliche example of a to-do list, when someone types some stuff in a form and hits add to list, you need to, first of all, make sure there's an existing list of to-do items. If there isn't, you have to create it. Then you have to create a list item and pop it in. Then maybe that list item has some interactivity where when you click it, it checks it off and crosses it out. Maybe you have the ability to edit that or delete it or rearrange it in order to. And each one of these features requires you to be aware of kind of the existing state in the browser, where I think a lot of these state-based UI libraries like React and Vue really shine is they handle a lot of that for you. So Jennifer, you've probably found this on a lot of the projects you work on with your agency. Being able to just say, if the data looks like this, do this, otherwise do that just kind of takes so much managing of what the UI currently looks like out of your hands. So you can just focus on how it should look given a particular set of situations. And vanilla JavaScript isn't there yet. But what I have found is libraries that get popular usually pave the cow paths 
for the browser native stuff that comes later. The only reason we have any of the awesome features we have today, the ability to easily add and remove classes or select elements with complex selectors is because jQuery got so popular and showed us how that might work. I fully expect that sometime in the next five to 10 years, all the stuff that we use React and Vue for today will have a lot of that browser native and there will still be these millions of legacy sites running on really old versions of react that never die because no one maintains them anymore you can say <laughs> the same thing for things like the module spec which is something that these various other third parties have pioneered or module loading mm -hmm. or any number of other things so couldn't you make the argument then that even if you have a moral objection to some of these frameworks that they serve mm -hmm. a vital purpose in that they are a real world proving ground for mm -hmm. what features we really might want or need in quote unquote, the platform and probably give us a better direction than if it was just a committee somewhere sitting there deciding what they were going to add. Yes, I think that's fair. I definitely think that's fair. And I also think that's one of my personal favorite things about JavaScript. One of the things that Voldemort did really well early <laughs> on was recognize that despite being a really smart guy, he wouldn't get it right 100% out of the box. And so there's all these amazing hooks that you can use to kind of build on and extend the language. Yeah. And if JavaScript has gotten anything right, it's been that. Its ability to kind of become this Swiss army knife that you can use for all sorts of things just by kind of bolting your own tools onto it. So um, it's not a hammer. It's pretty cool. It's a multi-tool. Not a hammer. It is a multi-tool. It is a multi-tool, but it's a weird multi-tool that you can take apart and like add and remove tools to whenever you want, <laughs> which is pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. And I think that's a really fair kind of assessment, Andrew, that these libraries are important. I would never reach for jQuery today as a, a starting yeah. point for any project, but I am right. so grateful that it existed and gave us so many awesome features. And I don't quite feel as warm and fuzzy about React and Vue right now, but I probably will a few years down the road. Um, yeah. I had a similar kind of slow path to acceptance and then love with jQuery as well. So we'll see. Would it be opening up a whole can of worms to talk about Node? Not at all. I think that'd be great. I mean, to be honest, I don't have a ton of experience with Node, but we can absolutely talk about it. I am ironically more of a PHP person on the server than Node, despite right, loving right. JavaScript. I guess because we were talking about sort of, mm. I mean, the, the purpose of this is I mean, just to mm. talk sort of candidly about JavaScript and see where the conversation goes. But when we're talking about from the starting point of, well, what is the internet? How does it work? What is PHP? What purpose does it serve? What is JavaScript? Mm -hmm. What purpose does it serve? And it sort of seems like up till now, JavaScript is for making things move around on the browser like maybe animating this and making that button do that yeah. um, and then there's this thing called node that is so incredibly popular and I've been working with it for a couple of years now and I still I still don't even know how it works really <laughs> does anyone know on this call how it works you can explain it to me I got a decent idea but I'll let Chris go first so node is a server side runtime for JavaScript that's built on Chrome's JavaScript rendering engine. And I've always viewed it as this interesting tool that allows you to take your JavaScript knowledge and be able to apply it to things outside of a browser, which is really cool. So with Node, you can use JavaScript to write server-side stuff. So, you know, you could build an entire backend now with JavaScript and a couple of plugins, which is pretty neat. You're seeing it used in things like machine learning and Internet of Things and robotics and all sorts of really cool applications. Andrew, you can probably give a much more nuanced and thorough explanation of this than I can. But I've always thought about it as 
thought of it as a a really interesting way to use JavaScript outside of a browser. Well, my first exposure to it, when I heard about it in 2009, I thought, I'm like, are they expletive crazy? Like, why are we running JavaScript on our server? Like, what are these people doing? You know, I, I mean, I understand experimenting in college, but this is just a little bit, a little bit beyond the pale of what I would think would be acceptable, to be honest with you. But I want to, I want to dial it back even a little bit further. Do you folks know that Node is not the original server-side JavaScript? It's off by a decade. It's a decade later than something that a company that you mentioned earlier, Chris, came out with. Netscape, in addition to having a browser, they also had a server package. And back in 1999, I believe, something like that, mm -hmm. they had server-side JavaScript where you could actually run JavaScript on your Net Netscape enterprise server running on your SGI or Sun Microsystems or whatever it was. Now, there were some limitations to it and there were some kind of horrible things to it and it never really became a thing. But man, that predated Node.js by a decade, which shows you that probably it was an interesting idea, but just the world wasn't quite ready for it at the time. I think that you nailed it. I mean, essentially, it's a way to leverage your JavaScript experience because the most popular programming language in the world is JavaScript. And I know I'm going to put HTML and CSS in a different category, even though they are languages. I'm going to say a, an imperative programming language. And it makes sense that you would want to leverage that skill. If you have that many people that know how to do this thing, it makes sense that you would want to be able to do it on different platforms. I was aghast to find out, you know, maybe six, seven years ago that a lot of the computerized checkout machines that we have at a grocery store, they're all running JavaScript. I, I'm just like, are you serious? Is that really? And this was like six or seven years ago. I couldn't believe it. But that's what, um, what Node is for. And, and then the successor to Node, which is Dino, which is server-side running TypeScript as well as JavaScript. But it, Node is, is pretty interesting. I mean, it, it lets you do a lot of stuff. It is a, a term that is a collection of stuff. So the way Node works is a little bit patchwork. There's some C libraries in there. There's some Wasm libraries in there. There's some actual JavaScript. There's the, the V8 engine, as you mentioned. But the long and the short of it is we can run code in the browser and we can run it on our server. And it's using the language that we know. And well, Jennifer loves it now. I don't know about Chris. Well, Chris loves it as long as it's the vanilla variety, it. right? You can't have the lemon no, squirrel, no, I really but the vanilla is I don't love good. it. Oh, you don't love <laughs> it? I don't, I don't love it. I actually, for a long time, I hated it. And I only started writing it because I had to. And then it was only when I discovered TypeScript that Mm. I started to be happy okay. with what I was doing. But I, I do want to ask later, you know, envision a world where like Voldemort never existed. Like what what would you do to make the web run? Like I do want to ask yeah. that to all of you. So one of the, just the peculiarities of Node, or I think the thing that kind of catches some people by surprise is not everything that you have in the browser is immediately available in Node just because of how it's implemented. So yeah. like for a while, you could not do asynchronous JavaScript in Node. And uh, even today when you're working with it, Actually, I don't know if the latest version has fetch or not, but like for a while you couldn't make fetch calls unless you installed a package. I think, was it the Axios library, I think? And it's still like yep. one of the more popular ones for that. And so there's always kind of this like catch up of like new new ES versions come out and then like an updated version of Node has to get released to add those. But Node has also been to space. I'm pretty sure it was SpaceX was using it to like power some of the GUI stuff on their, How does this on their stuff rockets, which was the source of many I mean, a joke, seriously. right? <laughs> Astronaut lost to space after like runtime error, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty, um, it is pretty interesting just how popular JavaScript has become yeah, and this is all kinda, the things you can do with it. It's kind of clever, Chris. I didn't realize this until recently. So Dino is kind of the successor to Node by the same 
author, and mm-hmm. he was trying to correct a lot of things that he thought he didn't do that great of a job when he did Node initially. One of the interesting mm-hmm. things to allow for isomorphic code, which is just JavaScript code that is the same code running in different places, it's all it means, it's the fancy word for it, is that even on the Node end of things, there is a window variable. So you can actually access the window variable and it will do things that you might expect awesome. that it would do in a browser, but in the CLI. So I thought that was really neat and it kind of bridges the gap and makes it even even easier to write TypeScript or JavaScript that runs in both places. Yeah, the lack of that in Node is really frustrating. So that's cool. I have not played around with Dino all that much, so I did not know, or Deno. I always forget how it's pronounced. I want to say Dino because it's got the dinosaur as the logo. They say um, Dino. I, uh, looks like Deno. I mean, whatever. <laughs> who's to say, really? Yes. But yeah, I did not realize that about that. I, to be honest, had not paid it much attention because I barely use Node. Or you could put the emphasis on the wrong syllable and say Deno. I love it. I'm going to do that. It's French. Deno. We'll go with that. Excellent. There's a couple more questions. One is sure. the future of JavaScript. Where do you think it's going? What should people be excited about? And what should maybe newer developers go and learn? Yeah. So the future of JavaScript, it's tough to say. One of the, one of the things I have noticed is there's been a lot more talk recently of taking things that we use libraries for and porting that back into the browser. So those same kind of conversations that happened around the time that all the jQuery stuff got moved into the browser, that's finally starting to happen with libraries. So I've seen specs or proposals around things like transition API, so you can get those neat cross fades that you get with single page app. I um, The one I'm personally most excited about is an HTML sanitization feature that's browser native. Mm, um, so yeah. one of the really nice things libraries give for you as a protection against cross-site scripting attacks is they will sanitize your markup before rendering it to remove a whole bunch of kind of malicious stuff that could expose you to a cross-site scripting attack. And there's Hopefully sometime in the near future going to be like a browser native way to do that. But I also see JavaScript being used a lot more integrally with device APIs now. And so there's features that are coming out that will allow you to do things like detect a user's preferences around how much data gets consumed. And then you could maybe choose how your app behaves based on that. You can access cameras and do all sorts of really cool stuff with JavaScript now. So I'm seeing it being used increasingly as an application engine. And I think with some of the more recent changes that have happened with Apple around the App Store and like a whole bunch of stuff there, I'm hoping that we will eventually start to see a bit of a renaissance around web apps, especially as new JavaScript features come into play and 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 that sort of thing. That's my hope. It's really tough to say because mm-hmm. 10 years ago, it looked like JavaScript was going to get a huge programming boost and then they reined it in and tried to make it a more simple language for a little while. So, you know, anything can happen. Yeah. And and what are you personally working on and where can people go and find out all about it? Great question. So a big part of my JavaScript education business is providing books, like really short guides and video courses for folks. So I am currently in the process of working on a handful of new ones. I have a whole bunch of guides on like beginner topics and I've started working on some for some more advanced topics. So things like service workers, serverless computing, token-based authentication. And based on those, or based on some feedback I've gotten from there, um, I also run a 10-week long JavaScript workshop for beginners. And I've had a lot of folks say that they want an expert version of that. So I've been working on a companion program that you can take afterwards that will Will take you from a blank HTML file to a working e-commerce store with backend over the course of about 10 weeks. That sounds, that sounds very interesting. Well, we'll put the links in the, awesome. on the show notes and in the website. 
Awesome, um, so thank people you. can go and click that. Well, that's wonderful. Well, I think we, we've solved the what is JavaScript question. <laughs> <laughs> we probably opened up more yeah. cans of worms than necessary, but hopefully we can have you back to talk about more nuances and details about it. Great. It'd be really awesome if you did. This time we'll ask Ryan more questions. I, I think oh, poor Ryan. Been dozing the whole time. Has anyone ever <laughs> actually opened a can of worms? No. I don't understand. <laughs> it's it's uh, Okay. Well, that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, or drop us a five-star review. We really appreciate it. For the devmode.fm podcast, I'm Jennifer Bloomberg. I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Ryan Ireland. We're really, really happy to have had Chris on. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I had a couple more questions for you, but we're going to have to do it some other time. We want to respect your, your hard break. <clears throat> I am so sorry about that. Yeah, No, no it's I all good. No, that. it's okay. Have you heard of HTMX? Yes, but I can't for the life of me. Like, So HTMX, like, real quick, I know you got like 30 seconds. So HTMX, this is going to be not on the show anyway. HTMX is uh, basically Carson, the guy who made it, kind of considers HTML, the standard body, kind of stopped. And they really needed to do more to allow for some dynamicism. And he is kind of okay. on your page in terms of he thinks that all these libraries and things are a little bit crazy. So he wrote an extension to HTML that he fills, <laughs> kind of fills in the missing gaps and allows for that interactivity and stuff. And it's a really interesting library. We did a show on it if you ever want to listen about it. But then he also, this is the question I want to ask you about, and you can just think about it, is he is also working on a project called HyperScript, which is like HyperTalk from uh, the old HyperCard days. So it's an interpreted language that you put in your browser that JavaScript then interprets and decodes and runs. And I think it's just absolutely crazy. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, that's weird. <clears throat> yeah. I'm going to have to check that out. All right, Chris. All right. See you later, Chris. Awesome. Thanks, I don't Chris. Want to Thank you. you all so very much. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Chris. Me Appreciate too. it. All right. So let's stop the recording.